Good evening, hushlings, and welcome. I present your preceptors to the underbelly of the void, the whispers of conjecture, and the known of the unknown. Thus begins the conclave of the Hush Hush Society. Greetings, hushlings. Welcome back to the Hush Hush Society Conspiracy Hour. Where we journey into the world of conspiratorial mysteries and dark truths. I'm Declassified Dave. And I'm Mystery Mike. And as always, we're joined by our little toddler friend, Slick Frank Sanders. Uh, 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 I'm young. I'm hip. I'm vibe. I am vibe. I am Slick Frank Sanders. What's going on? A lot of excitement. A lot of excitement. Dude, I'm so jazzed up right now. I was going to say, you are jazzed. 9 p.m. on a Wednesday night. That's the energy we need. <laughs> Let's go. That's that young energy. How are you doing tonight? What's going on? Super swell. Swell, swell, baby. Well, Hushlings, in this debriefing, we're at it again as we chip away at the conspiracy iceberg chart. Oh, yeah. And it's our birthday. It's our birthday. Blow out the candles, Dave. Blow out the candles, Mike. We got candles. Blow them out. Burr, burr, burr. Yes, Hushlings, that's correct. We are celebrating our third birthday, third anniversary, whatever you want to call it. It's our day. And because it's our birthday, we will be bearing the gift of three different topics to you of the fringe and weird because we love you and it can be your birthday too. It actually really is their birthday, right? They're they're Hushling, their third Mm -hmm. Hushling birthday. For the ones that have been here since the get since the beginning. Yeah, yeah. I suppose. Yeah. I mean, this might be a, a first birthday for you. This might be a 90 day birthday for you. Could be your first day. Yeah. Either way, happy birthday is right. Well, if you've been with us since the beginning, we appreciate you. We love you, hushlings, and you know it. Even if today is your first day. Welcome. What a day to be here. All right, Hushlings, let's do this. But before we scale the summit of the great iceberg chart, just want to remind you, as always, of our socials, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And wouldn't be a a show without your reviews. The reviews that you leave us on Google Podcasts, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you leave reviews, we appreciate them. Continue to drop them. Let us know how we're doing. Five stars or above. And if you don't, don't leave a rating. (laughs) Exactly. And if you're interested in everything Hush Hush Society, check out our website, hushhushsociety.com. Super easy, super smooth. Has all the episodes like the one you're listening to today, merchandise, blogs, all the links that Mike mentioned, and the direct link to our smiling faces on Rockfin. And lastly... Just a little bit of a thank you for you hushlings. Um, like to start off, I, I, I don't want to tear up a little bit. I'm going to keep it a little bit short, quick, and sweet. But thank you guys. You know, we're, we're three years into this, and we couldn't have done this without your support, without your listens, your views, your subscriptions, without your comments, your feedback. We appreciate you guys more than you know. And we always say that, but really and truly, we could not do this without you guys. So thank you. And cheers to years four and so on and so forth. And we hope that you guys continue to enjoy the Hush Hush Society Conspiracy Hour. Here, 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 here. All right, boys, let's get into this. We're going to start with Declassified. Dave, what do you got from the conspiracy iceberg chart for us and the Hushlings? It took me a little while to figure it out. I was uh, running up and down this iceberg chart. I didn't want to go too deep because most of the stuff at the depths is hard to look at or even find. But I found something pretty interesting. Let me cut you off right there. Do you know how deep on this iceberg chart you went? Your topic. Where does it stand on the iceberg chart? How many levels are there? Like seven? I don't even know. No, there's more than seven. It was halfway or so. So there's multiple versions of the conspiracy theory iceberg chart. Some Mm. go as deep as 20 levels. Wow. The the one that I used was the one that was very, very long and like it's a massive file. Once you start getting into a lot of those deeper, deeper levels, it's a lot of bullshit. 
and just like, yeah, this was mentioned once on Reddit 20 years ago. <laughs> just random shit that doesn't really exist. All right. Well, I chose the 21 grams experiment. Have you guys ever heard of the 21 grams experiment? I have. I have right. heard of this one. So it's very interesting. We got a guy, Duncan MacDougall. I call him Donkey Mac most of the time while we're talking about this because it's just Donkey Mac from Haverhill, Massachusetts. He was a physician from Haverhill, Massachusetts, and he published a scientific study called the 21 Grams Experiment all the way back in 1907. Now, McDougall proposed that souls have physical weight and attempted to calculate the amount of mass lost by a human when the soul left the body at the exact time of death. During one of these experiments, one of the six participants, not really participants, uh, forced patients, I guess, uh, nearly lost 21.3 grams. So I guess that's the the soul. I thought it could have just been gas. Yeah, because people do relieve themselves upon death, don't they? Yeah. Now, McDougall stated that his experiment would have to be repeated numerous times before a definitive conclusion could be reached. Obviously, we got to have a lot of dead folks. So in 1901, he did the experiment. He identified six nursing home patients whose deaths were imminent. Four had tuberculosis. One had diabetes. And one had an unspecified cause of illness. Now, Dunkey Mac specifically chose patients who were suffering from conditions that caused physical exhaustion because he needed patients to be still when they died in order to accurately measure them. I guess it's better than just being like tied down while you're on your deathbed, right? They're not willingly still, but they're not tying them down. I guess there's some sort of consent attributed to that sort of kind of just throw me in the trash (laughs) flush me down the toilet flush me like a goldfish (laughs) when the patients appeared to be near death their entire bed was placed on an industrial size scale with the sensitivity of two tenths of an ounce or 5.6 grams but they just like rolled them on the whole bed one of those scales that they weigh cows on at the dairy farms. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's what it is. The 21 grams is a little bit of milk loss and they accidentally screwed up the paperwork and got it all messed up. The soul is within the milk. So one of these patients actually lost weight instantly, yet they gained it back a fart and bloat, right? Not imagine. And two other patients lost weight at the time of death, but gained it back a few minutes later. So the other guy was instant. Now, one of the patients lost three-fourths of an ounce, which is 21.3 grams of weight at the exact time that he died. McDougall concluded that that patient, their soul, could have been 21.3 grams. It's the only one of six. I mean, that's really not a lot of testing. Well, probably didn't have a whole lot of people volunteering to do this. I don't think you probably didn't tell anybody. There had to be some sort of consent to it because you got to set that up and be ready for them to go and put them on the scale. Well, McDougal ignored the results of all the other patients because he claims the scales were, quote, not finely adjusted. And he ignored the results of another patient because the patient died while the equipment was still being calibrated. Not sure why they didn't have it ready, but death waits for no one. It should be noted, though, that each time a patient died on the scale, the team of scientists he had made the necessary deductions to find 21 grams that were always unaccounted for. It was always 21 grams? They did the math to make it 21 grams every time. So far, it sounds like a whole lot of confirmation bias. No, it's just weird that while they were doing these experiments, while people were passing away, some would gain that weight back after they passed, and some would lose the weight directly after they died. There was just some variation between patients. Maybe it's determined by where the soul is going. Going to heaven, you get lighter. Going to hell, you get heavier. From what I'm gathering, there wasn't any difference in getting heavier or getting lighter necessarily. If it came back, maybe those who regain the weight, they're stuck in purgatory or something. It's terrible. Those who remained 21 grams lighter, 
went to heaven or hell, whatever it may be, got reincarnated. I'm not sure, but it's weird. There, there is that variance. There's the variance, but the 21 grams was always made to, to happen because it happened once. So he was convinced, I would imagine, and everyone else that it happened to. He told everybody, we have to get to 21. I don't know how they did the math. I'd like to go back in time and ask this guy, what the fuck were you thinking? <laughs> Interesting experiment. He also believed that animals didn't have souls. Dogs, cats, just people. So he measured the weight changes in 15 dogs after they died. Did that as well. If people weren't enough. Uh, he explained that he wanted to use sick or dying dogs, just like the people that he used in experiments, and was unable to find any. So a lot of folks assume that he actually poisoned healthy dogs to reach his conclusions. And as a result, none of the dogs lost weight after death. Dogs have no soul. Damn. This was happening in the early 1900s. So at that point, they knew that we were genetically closer to pigs than dogs. Why didn't he use pigs? Yeah, dogs are man's best friend, and they seem as though they have souls, but why wouldn't you use something genetically closer to us than a dog? Why wouldn't they use a chimpanzee? I'm sure that's harder to get your hands on than a pig or a dog, even a cat. True. True. Go into the depths of the Congo and (laughs) kidnap 15 chimpanzees and put them on their deathbeds to weigh their souls. I do have to say that the average house mouse weighs roughly 21 grams. How do you know that? What do you mean? A house mouse weighs anywhere from like uh, 5 to 30 grams, but on average is about 21 grams. Ipso facto, these people died and the mouse left the sphincter. (laughs) Oh my god. Or somebody had a mouse in their pocket. It's my lucky dying mouse. It was like a rabbit's foot. So a couple years later, Donkey Mac decided to publish this 21 grams experiment in 1907 in American Medicine Magazine. And physician Augustus P. Clark questioned its validity. Clearly. Clark observed the sudden rise in body temperature at the time of death as the lungs no longer cool blood, causing a subsequent rise in sweating, which could easily account for McDougal's missing 21 grams. So we evaporated. They just evaporate 21 grams. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, 20 milliliters of water is roughly 20 grams. So, yeah. But who's to say that the soul doesn't leave the body in the form of sweat? Touche. Touche. Clark also pointed out that dogs don't have sweat glands, and they would not lose weight in this manner after death. And in 1911, the New York Times reported that McDougal was hoping to run experiments to take it to the new level. He wanted to photograph souls. But he appears to not have continued any further research because everybody thought he was full of shit and probably killed 15 dogs. Uh, And McDougal died in 1920. So essentially, this conspiracy just boils down to uh, a doctor being a dog killer. I wouldn't go that far. (laughs) I'm a firm believer that people do, in fact, have souls. Most people, most people, the majority of them. And I commend this man for trying to weigh them. What constitutes somebody to not having a soul? NPC. NPC. But how does a soul and the weight of a soul play into the simulation? Uh, You're asking really deep questions that we do not have time for, bud. (laughs) Maybe maybe the lines of code of their soul, quote unquote, are leaving the system. And the system is seeing that as loss of weight how the simulation sees that amount of code leaving the system. My brain is fucking spinning. Yeah. (laughs) And I can't even talk about it because I will go on a 15 minute rant. We have to move on. (laughs) Simulation part two. Dude, let's just do a simulation part two and rant. Let's not even do any research. Let's just (laughs) bullshit about it. I would love that. Season nine, baby. McDougall's experiment has been rejected by most of the scientific community, and he has been accused of both flawed methods and outright fraud in obtaining his results. We also note that one of the six patients measured supported the hypothesis, which is the case of selective reporting. 
McDougall ignored the majority of the other results. Scientists also questioned how McDougall was able to determine the exact moment of death, considering the technology available at the time. How was he able to determine that? Because it's like, okay, you could tell a patient or a doctor could tell a patient, oh, well, you only have weeks to live or days to live or something like that. But how do you know when the exact time is coming? And did he have a team on the ready? We got to be ready the moment that this is going to happen. But even then, even if you have a team on the ready, you still don't know. Unless you're injecting the patients with poison. So are we talking like full full arrest or death? Because I just looked it up. The EKG machine was invented in 1903. Two years after he did this, essentially either have had to known the person that made this machine or had one beforehand to really know when the heart fully stopped. I mean, I'm sure they had stethoscopes and stuff, but... The actual electrocardiogram machine was invented in 1903. So you had to have something that was measurable, something that could measure that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then even then, when was it decided that the human brain lives like seven minutes past the heart stopping and sound and stuff is the last to go. Well, then you have the debate of where is, like you said, where is the soul located? Is it located within the brain? Is it located in your chest? People say you either have heart or brawn or brains. And is the soul associated with consciousness? Because then we don't really know where that manifests from. Is it all of us? Is it just up here? Is it the pineal gland? Yeah. Because if he's going based on when the heart stopped, then that time of wait would be wrong anyways if you're again if we're going based on when the brain dies is that the actual death time and if he did have that information was there a maybe that's how he did it maybe it was just the moment of death and then a countdown of seven minutes or something if he had that information available at the time that'd be a little more measurable and, and be able to kind of see that coming and I just looked just in case to see how much the pineal gland weighed to see if it was like a little, you know, one of those little spheres that we're seeing float out of the body. Uh, 0.1 grams. Not even close. Squishy brain bean. Well, scientists also think that the fact that McDougal likely poisoned and killed 15 healthy dogs in the attempt to support his research has also been criticized as well. His experiment has not been repeated exactly the same, but similar in it was in 2001 with goats. There is also physician Gerard Nahum who proposed in 2005 a follow-up experiment based on utilizing an array of electromagnetic detectors to try to pick up any type of escaping energy at the moment of death. He offered to sell the idea to engineering, physics, and philosophy departments at Yale, Stanford, Duke University, as well as the Catholic Church, the Vatican, Uh, but he was rejected by all of them. This shouldn't be an experiment that's inhumane, you know, like they could do this in hospitals. But they don't want to. There's tons of experiments that happened post-mortem. It's been happening for centuries, operations and experiments. And Hmm. when taken into account, trying to measure the soul or weigh the soul, we have two accountable experiments. And why is that? And in, in, in 2001, when this guy is trying to sell his experiment, essentially, to many different institutes as far as the church, he's getting declined. Like, why is that? Why is that? Why is this something nobody's willing to take part in? The information seems like biased and negative, almost. They're making him out to seem like a dog killer. Why has this only happened twice? In a hospital setting, they're not looking for woo-woo stuff. But they are. They've researched brain activity past the point of but that's the, brain the heart activity. stopping. That's still scientific. Yeah. But brain activity post-mortem wasn't scientific until the experiments took place. But still, that's operations of the brain. As yeah. opposed to something that is mentioned within religious texts or something that is spiritual. That's why it's so dangerous. Uh, but spiritual things happen within the brain. 
But again, that's you attributing something woo-woo to it. No, that's DMT. <laughs> By the way, uh, the only thing in the human body that weighs roughly 21 grams is the thyroid. In women, it's almost exactly 21 grams. But I don't know what happens to your thyroid after you die. So that's... It just leaves your body. Probably well, withers away and turns into a pruned raisin. Let's do a quick final thoughts on this topic so that we're not getting all jumbled at the end here. Dave, final thoughts. Interesting experiment. If he killed 15 dogs, kind of an asshole. It, it poses lots of deep questions like we've, like we've talked about. You know, If there is really a soul, why is it being hushed? Why does nobody want to scientifically talk about it? But then you said it brings it into spirituality and religion and not everybody's on that page until we can all agree that there's something else energy wise that could be happening after death. We'll probably never know. Interesting experiment. Personally, I, I don't know. I think that this guy worked on a whole lot of confirmation bias going through his experiment. It is an interesting experiment. It's a thing that I think should be looked into, especially nowadays with our modern technology. Somebody out there, if you're listening and you have all the equipment, make it happen. Slick Fox Anders, quick final thought on the 21 grams experiment. For sure. A shout out Duncan McDougal. Shout out Gerard Nahum, both of which looked into this and I think there should be more experiments that delve into the subject. And I think that there's a reason that there hasn't been more experiments that delve into the subject. And that's because the soul is being kept hush. I, I genuinely believe that. And th that's the reason why this hasn't been looked into more. I hope it gets really cracked open. I hope science really opens up. I think there's something a little bit more to it. Because then we find out if there's a soul, then the prison planet is real. The yeah, reincarnation happens, and then we're all fucked when we figure it out. Putting the term soul on it, it's very general. Just like something more to consciousness. There's something within you that's like unquantifiable. There's something unmeasurable within you as a person. Maybe, hopefully. And I think people should look into that in case there, there is. Maybe the framework of it just needs to be reworded. So instead of saying, let's weigh and see if a soul is lost at the time of death, you do say, let's see if consciousness weighs anything. Because that's more of a thing that somebody might be able to look into because within the scientific community, that's something that they do want to explore is like, what is consciousness? So at the time of death, if there is some sort of weight loss, you could say, all right, let's do this research and let's do this experiment to see if consciousness weighs anything, if we lose any sort of weight with consciousness. And I think if you were to reword that and make that framework completely different, then more people would be apt to do it because then it's less woo-woo. Potato, potato, bro. Yeah, I, I, realistically, yes, but just saying. Yeah. Wording gets people to do uh, different things. Agreed. All right, boys. Y'all ready for this one? This one bounces a little bit in a few different directions. It's a wild one, but the meat and potatoes of it is there. This is deep on the, on the chart. It's called The Ocean at Night. On November 11th, a strange sequence of seismic waves emitted from a region along the Mozambique Channel near the French colony of Mayonnette. These seismic waves, despite being detected by sensors as far away as Canada and Chile, and stretching over 11,000 miles, unfolded without being seen by anyone. Geologists were wrestling with the puzzling nature of this intriguing phenomena, which has raised a number of concerns. Surprisingly, if it hadn't been for an amateur earthquake enthusiast on Twitter, these strange occurrences might have gone completely ignored. User Matterickic Pax, a Twitter user, initially determined the site of these shocks to be off the coast of Madagascar. 
subsequently finding similar seismic recordings in Kenya, Spain, and New Zealand. Pretty widespread. Geologists were baffled by the unusual characteristics of these waves. The confusion grew as the seismic equipment revealed a repetitive, low-frequency resonance, quite unlike the normal reverberations seen after earthquakes, aftershocks. The key feature that distinguishes these waves is their monochromatic quality, which is characterized by a single zigzag pattern repeated throughout a 17-second period. Goran Ekstrom, a seismologist at Columbia University, known for analyzing unusual seismic events, expressed surprise at the phenomenon's unprecedented character. So, this guy knows a bit about seismology and was freaked out by it, unnerved. In essence, the incident outlines a captivating scientific puzzle, as seismic waves with strikingly unique traits sweep across the Mozambique Channel. While globally detectable, these waves remain elusive to human senses, leaving geologists intrigued and seeking answers. The geographic center of the waves has previously seen tremendous seismic activity. After all, it's in a volcanic island in a volcanic archipelago. So normally these waves would be expected to follow a massive earthquake. But scientists claim that there were no magic that there was no major seismic activity in the area preceding this incident. So where the hell did the waves come from? Atlantis. Atlantis. It's, Atlantis. it's the Atlanteans. If I'm elected again, we will go down to Atlantis. It's going to be huge. It's gonna we're going to build a wall around we're Atlantis. Gonna, <laughs> we're going to build three subsequent walls around Atlantis. These seismic waves were not detected, or they were detected with no earthquake? They were detected with no earthquake. Usually, they see these types of things after an earthquake, so like tremors. These did not happen around an earthquake or a volcanic eruption. They essentially came out of nowhere. It's a goddamn wormhole opening up in the ocean, dude. Mm. Frank, you're onto something. So obviously geologists are still trying to figure out what caused it, with the most widely accepted theory being that it was caused by a magma reservoir beneath the Earth's crust being rocked by tiny earthquakes. However, the precise intervals of the waves make it difficult to say anything definitively. So these were happening kind of almost rhythmically and in a certain time, incrementally. This digs into a conspiracy that surfaced in relation to a WikiLeaks release in 2013. The theory claims that a mystery vortex exists above the Gulf of Aden, near the Horn of Africa. According to the theory, this unexplained vortex played a part in causing disastrous weather occurrences in the early 2000s. Also, while the Gulf of Aden is in the same general area as the Mozambique Channel, the two are not in close proximity. So, same general part of the world, but a little farther apart. Mediterranean-ish. Yeah, yeah, around that area. Very volcanically active. Mm-hmm. So the conspiracy theory is based on information apparently contained in an inquiry assigned to Russian Northern Fleet Admiral Nikolay Mazamov, and allegedly put together by none other than Vladimir Putin. This document describes an unexpected disturbance that was supposedly detected in the Gulf of Aden in late 2000. Surprisingly, the disturbance prompted a response from the U.S., resulting in a building of a military base in the area. So they built a freaking base because of this. Information was withheld and changed for the public, as always, stating the staging was in response to attacks from Somali pirates. We pretty much said, yeah, we built a thing over there, we built a base over there so that we can respond quickly to pirate attacks. Story goes on to say, the strange vortex presented an extraterrestrial or interdimensional threat to the world, and competing superpowers, including Russia and the United States, were planning to join forces to protect humanity, the one thing that would bring us all together, the freaking aliens. Others have claimed that the gateway is the consequence of CERN or another particle collider, as a similar vortex was supposedly detected above Norway in 2009. Now, interesting note to this whole thing. 
This WikiLeaks document I did go through, and it's kind of a weird document. It's called the Global Intelligence File, and it was gathered, all the information in it was gathered by this intelligence firm, a la you know, Lockheed Martin, that type of thing, called Stratfor. And they're what's known as a global intelligence company, and they're out of Texas. Now, this came as kind of a leak from emails that they got from the company sent back and forth, and there was a whole lot of information within this one, pretty much where they were talking about everything that was going on. And part of the email goes into these global weather events that go on throughout the world, but mainly things that happened around Norway. Supposedly, there was some sort of blue spiral explosion that happened over Norway, which is what they're talking about with that 2009 incident. And then following that, there was a bunch of weird weather anomalies. It does mention it in these Wikilinks emails for this company. What was the year that these seismic waves were first detected? Uh, 2000. In other years, early in the early 2000s, there was other things that happened. So it's all kind of around the same decade or so. Interesting. Here's where the ocean at night theory or title comes from. Many supporters of this theory believe the United States was working on a top secret project, and the flat earthers are going to love this, involving building an artificial sun in hopes of creating an endless source of energy. We have a real sun, though. We have a real sun. But we can't harness direct, like, plasma energy from it. So what about all the flat earthers when they see... Because we had somebody that was on our Facebook for quite some time that was telling us uh, that there's two suns. Mm -hmm. Could this be the second sun? The No Planet X, take that out of consideration. Now it's just Vladimir's sun. And what's also interesting is that there are pictures of airline pilots flying over the ocean at night, and they do see lights in the ocean, really bright lights. And apparently they can also be seen from space. I wonder how much of this is actually true. Side note, the U.S. has been involved in the Gulf of Aden area since the 1970s. So we've been around for quite a while in that particular area. The activation of this project caused a massive surge of energy, which in essence disturbed an ancient creature living under the ocean. Think uh, Cthulhu. This caused the creature to rise from the deepest depths of the ocean and for military forces around the world to respond. According to theorists, a massive battle ensued and the creature disappeared. Nations around the world are now in high alert mode for a return of the creature or even more than one. That would be fucking nuts. So a bunch of kaiju rising out of the ocean. I remember Godzilla. the bloop was in 1997 as well. Different part of the world, but... Mm -hmm. I'm I'm sorry. Humans aren't fighting Cthulhu. <laughs> Humans are not shaking off Cthulhu to where it shivers back away into the shadows. Like that's not happening. Yeah, yeah. That that part of the story I think is funny, but yeah, not believable that we would, especially a, a thing of that size. If they're talking about a massive, massive creature. With, like, nuclear submarines and some crazy-ass torpedoes. Maybe. We can't even figure out universal health care, man. <laughs> like, we're, we're talking about fighting a mythical creature. <laughs> some Lovecraftian <laughs> Goliath. I mean, also keep in mind, we don't do a whole hell of a lot of ocean exploration. The government seems especially interested in ocean exploration. Hmm. Hushlings will return after this short message. Greetings, Hustronauts. For our premiere of Season 9, we tell the story of a benevolent extraterrestrial claiming to be from Venus. He landed on Earth on March 16th of 1957 with a three-year mission to monitor our planet ever since the atomic bomb blast in World War II. Allegedly, President Eisenhower and Vice President Nixon actually met with him to accept the invitation to have Earth join the interstellar community. 
Did he really live at the Pentagon and meet with many government officials throughout his time on Earth? Did he make us a part of the Galactic Federation, then dematerialized on March 16th of 1960? We dive deep into this hot topic of ufology and find out who is Valiant Thor for Debriefing 81. Streaming everywhere, Monday, September 4th. Welcome back to the Hush Hush Society Conspiracy Hour. Others believe that the vortex is growing and could possibly be the beginnings of a black hole. An excerpt from the WikiLeaks document could point to the latter being true. So I took this from the WikiLeaks document that I was just talking about, this email with the Stratford employee. Part of it says, after remaining relatively stable since its discovery in November of 2000, this report continues, the Gulf of Aden vortex began to, quote, expand in late 2008, prompting the United States to issue an extraordinary warning to the entire world about this mysterious occurrence in which, in response, the following nations rushed their naval forces to this area. Royal Australian Navy, Belgian Navy, Bulgarian Navy, Canadian Navy, People's Liberation Navy, China, Royal Danish Navy, French Navy, German Navy, everybody's Navy, the Greek, Indian, Islamic Republic of Iran, Italian, Japan, the Republic of Korea, Malaysia, Saudi Arabia, Netherlands, you get the point. Pretty much everybody showed up and is ready for whatever may come from this entire thing. Did that really happen? Uh, <laughs> Who knows? Could this be the the shift of the dimensional rift that we're in, causing less than a year before 9-11 and all the different changes in our world? So Vortex growing in 2008, everybody looks at 2012 with CERN being the shift change, but realistically, what's a couple of year difference? Like, was anybody paying attention in 2008 versus 2012 to see, It was like, an election year. Nobody was paying yeah. attention to that shit. No. Or there were such small changes that nobody really noticed the small changes happening. See, that just blows the whole notion of anything science that we understand out of the water. But realistically, a black hole could be started anywhere with the right amount of energy. CERN is the Lee Harvey Oswald of the universe. <laughs> Ready to take us out. Dude, CERN is the scapegoat for whatever was happening in the ocean at that time. I'm telling you. And there was not enough people paying attention at the time for that to be the case. Hmm. Now, there's a couple other weird things to this overall conspiracy, which is why I say it's kind of all over the place. Also within that WikiLeaks document, they talk about how there's the possibility of this possibly being a Stargate opening in the middle of the ocean. That's also something that they thought of, but then there was astronomers that said there's no possibility of this being a Stargate because it astronomically doesn't line up or something like that. Yeah, but with transmedium craft... It could. Who knows? It's also in like the cradle, the quote cradle of civilization area. It's also very close to all these mythical and extraordinary. We don't even know what they are structures like the pyramids. And there is the conspiracy or allegedly that we went to. uh, What was it? Iraq for Stargate instead of the actual oil that was proposed. The ordinary. For sure. Yeah, I just want to end this whole thing with another part of this WikiLeaks because it, realistically the whole thing is very interesting and you can do a search for it for a freedom of information thing on the CIA FBI website and it does pop up. There are uh, things of the Gulf of Aden pretty much everywhere. But in regards to the weird weather anomalies, they do go further into it by saying in Britain today, Their vast transportation system was ground to a halt due to unprecedented snow and cold. Likewise, in Germany, 
travel chaos has ensued due to abnormal snow and cold. Sweden is reporting the coldest temperatures it's ever experienced in over 101 years, as China is rushing to rescue thousands of herdsmen trapped by their worst snowfall in 30 years, and is further reporting the deaths of over 70,000 farm animals. The really crazy thing about this whole document is that there are literal links. Whoever sent this email provided links to these different stories of weird weather anomalies going on. They said the United States has also reported one of the most massive storm systems in its history that for the past few days has blanketed nearly its entire landmass with unprecedented amounts of rain. A lot of stuff going on here. They also attribute that this could be the actual reason as to why Julian Assange was imprisoned or considered a traitor, why the United States went after him, is because they released this entire thing about the Gulf of Aden vortex, and the United States apparently sees this as the number one danger of this world. Not their Galactic Federation, off-world officers, and all that other shit. Because of the danger to essentially the entire planet and human life as we know it because of the vortex. In the ocean. In the ocean. I love it. Not some sort of off-world threat. You know how freaky that has to be? The biggest danger to humanity as we know it is on our planet and there's nothing we can do about it. Well, humans are here. For a little (laughs) while. For a little while. The great part about this email, too, is that it has the guy's name and his office and his cell phone number. If you ever want to hit that up. (laughs) We'll post it. Yeah, we'll we'll dox this guy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so I'm interested in your final thoughts on this one. Dave? This one's creepy. Uh, I've never heard of this one. I'm a little freaked out. I guess nothing's happened. It's 2023, almost 2024. I can't really correlate bad things happening in our social, economic capitalist hell of a world being attributed to a black hole, having an expanding vortex in the water that almost every able-bodied Navy on this planet went to raises some eyebrows. What's going on there? I don't really have crazy thoughts on it. Uh, I got more questions. What what do we got going on there? Because this isn't the first time that militaries have rushed somewhere that wasn't, I guess, part of UFOs or anything like that. It's it's definitely not the first time and definitely not the last. And I'm sure it's happened again and again and again that we don't know about since 2008 in other parts of the world. Maybe we're all uh, just going to get sucked into the earth one day and it'll be it. Creepy, really, really creepy that they put that much effort and energy and our tax dollars into, into going there to see what's going on. Like I said, our involvement in the Gulf of Aden has been ongoing since the 70s. More so it was to support coups and stuff like that that were going on in the Middle East. Uh, I can't really speak to us doing anything otherwise in the 70s. But this whole thing is very weird because I thought when I first started looking into it, the ocean at night, it was presented as the conspiracy that there were massive sea creatures that were rising to the ocean surface at night like most nocturnal predators in the ocean would do. Daytime predators, they tend to hide at night or they, you know, nest somewhere for nighttime. And then obviously the nocturnal predators come out in the water. So it is a naturally occurring thing, but I thought it was more going to jump into more of these deep sea creatures as the conspiracy went on, but it slowly morphed into like all these different things. And I think that's why I I thought it was so intriguing. And if any part of it, realistically, if any part of it is true, then it is scary. It's wild. The thought that we are trying to create some sort of fake sun, that's a good one, but also the thought of some sort of Cthulhu type creature living under the ocean. It's like Godzilla. Godzilla! I can't wait. Frank, what do you got on that? It's interesting that there's been this much attention into the ocean that we haven't really heard about prior. We haven't talked about it on the show too, too much. I'm not even going to pretend to know what's going on. 
it could be anything. It could be a fake sun. It could be some other dimensional deity. It could be some sort of portal. It could be some sort of weird seismic activity that we're just not privy to science-wise regarding the earth sciences. And that very well could be what they saw, but it could also be something supernatural for a lack of better words. It could be something freaky. It could be some Cthulhu-type shit. Not that I think that some sort of human weapons could shake off Cthulhu. Like, growing up, I thought Cthulhu was the craziest, awesomest shit. Especially growing up watching South Park, there was like a three-part episode of Cthulhu. So I, I looked into Cthulhu a bunch after watching that. But... Yeah, I have no idea what that could be. It could be some alien shit. It could be some interdimensional shit. It could just be some Earth shit, and we would never know. We would never know. We know the tip of the iceberg, no pun intended, regarding our planet. It could very well be natural, but it could also be some otherworldly, other dimensional sort of thing happening. All right, Frank guide us through your conspiracy i'm excited for this one yeah yeah uh hit it out of the pack all right boys my theory begins with the legends that have shrouded the nihani valley or as some call it the valley of headless men according to indigenous lore the valley is cursed and inhabited by spirits seeking revenge for past wrongdoings there's been tales of travelers vanishing without a trace and decapitated bodies have been discovered in the surrounding area. The Naihani Valley has remained largely untouched over the centuries. It's home to many diverse animal species, most of which are predatorial. Large grizzly bears as well as timber wolves are extremely prevalent. Historically, the lands around the valley were home to the peoples of the Daini indigenous tribes who called the valley home for hundreds of years. Tales passed down through the generations, also mentioning another tribe living there, one called the Neha. The Dene tribe claimed that the Neha were a warlike tribe living in the high mountains and only traversing into the lowlands of the valleys to raid and kill. Uh, where is this located? It's in the northern Canada vicinity. It's in the remote north of Canada. It's gorgeous. Yeah, yeah, wow. it's absolutely beautiful. It's like the Grand Canyon of Canada. Yeah, it's very pretty. So the Dine people state that the Neha simply vanished all of a sudden out of nowhere and that the raid stopped and that they weren't heard from or seen from again. And of course, they could have migrated elsewhere. They could have succumbed to disease or they, they were just hiding in plain sight. And this mystery could have quickly just died out. Just another legendary story of an indigenous tribe disappearing out of nowhere. But several eerie deaths and disappearances within the valley caused some to speculate. Most of the focus was on one particular place within the valley called the 200 Mile Gorge, especially because of the events that took place there. For it's within this 200 Mile Gorge that gained the infamous title of the Valley of the Headless Men. The origins of the valley's nickname can be traced to the early 20th century. At this time, many would-be prospectors flocked to the remote Canadian wilderness as it was known to contain gold in its rivers and soils, and a fortune could be quickly made by those lucky enough to strike gold. Two of these prospectors decided to traverse the traditional routes and locations leading to the Yukon, and decided to instead try their luck in the Nahani Valley. They were two brothers, Willie and Frank McLeod. In 1906, they canoed upriver to reach the Nahani Valley, and that was the very last time anyone saw them alive. Ooh, creepy, creepy. 
Yeah, yeah, man. Yeah. This 1906 expedition, that was actually their second time in the valley. The first time it was three McLeod brothers. Their third brother, his name's fleeting me, but they went up to the valley and they had stayed there for like a year and a half, two years. They made filthy bank. They dug up a shitload of gold. And as they were leaving down the river, their canoe split in half and it sunk. So they swam down, they collected the gold that they could, they took their boat, they patched it up, and they left with the remains of their plunder. Tough break. Yeah, yeah. And then they came back a couple years later. Their third brother wanted no part in that, so they got some third random guy from the general store to come with them on this expedition. In 1908, two years later, a search party discovered their skeletons at the remains of a camp. Both brothers were headless, and it seemed as though they were asleep when they were attacked. The body of one of the brothers lay reaching out towards a rifle, indicating a need for defense. So when they found him dead, he was like grabbing for his gun and Mm. obviously never made it. Saw the attack coming. Yeah. Some speculate of feuding prospectors killing one another. Others attributed the deaths to wild animals, while some spoke of warlike natives leaving the headless corpses as a warning to other trespassers. Theories floated about until another corpse was discovered in 1917. It was that of a Swiss prospector named Martin Jorgensen. His body was discovered decapitated next to the remains of his cabin. It was burned to the ground. It's said that he struck gold in the area, or at least that's what he said in the letter that he wrote to his family before ending up beheaded. An article from the February 15th, 1947 issue of the Desert News newspaper titled Headless Valley Myths Dispelled goes in depth while trying to bash all of the mystery and trying to find logic for the murders. Unfortunately, much of the article's contents were pretty much guesswork. In the paper, it said that Jorgensen and the McLeod brothers were all murdered for the gold that they had discovered. Although no evidence, if any, was found to support that this was the case. All these people are found headless? A bunch of them. Not all of them, but a bunch of them. That sounds human. Indigenous tribes did do that. We've done that. In 1927, another body was discovered in the valley belonging to a man nicknamed Yukon Fisher. He was known as an outlaw and a prospector. This man was wanted by the Royal Canadian Mounted Police for years before his death. The officials found his skeleton on the banks of Bennett Creek, very close to the place where the bodies of the McLeod brothers were found in 1908. His death was never fully explainable. He was just found dead on the side of the river. No no stab wounds, no gunshot wounds, no slits, no cuts, no anything like that. And still with his head? Yeah, he was headful. He wasn't headless. He was but headful. Yeah, he was headless. He was headful. Headmore. <laughs> Headmore. <laughs> yeah, several of these people were found with their head intact, while about half of them that were going to go over were headless. Furthermore, in 1931, another body was found. This time it was that of Phil Powers. His charred remains were discovered in the ashes of what was his cabin. The authorities were quick to attribute his death to a faulty stovepipe, but their explanation was repeatedly debunked by various sources. Phil Powers, for what it's worth, was likely murdered at his cabin, which was set ablaze. Several others simply disappeared without a trace in the remote wilderness of the Nahani Valley. In 1928, one prospector named Angus Hull ventured ahead of his party and was never seen again. Joe Mullahond and Bill Epier disappeared in 1936, and for years they were searched for, but they were never found. So this is almost like a continuation of Missing 411 slash you've got a bunch of people getting their heads chopped off. Yeah, way up there, Canada. 
way up. Yeah. If you've looked at the pictures of this place, um, this valley in particular, there there's no roads leading up to it. You can only get to this place, A, by foot, B, by boat, or C, by plane. That's the only way. It's either boat, plane, or you, you hike up there. And the terrain is wicked. Absolutely just ridiculous. Yeah, it's almost like 90 degree slopes everywhere that you look. Just reading 3,000 plus foot drops and stuff like that. Yeah. Eesh. Now, like we had said, the valley is so treacherous and inhospitable that even in the 1920s, it was still mostly unexplored. Maps of the region showed almost nothing except for two flat lines that indicated the two main rivers, the Nahani and the Flat. Deaths continued to pile up in the valley. In 1945, a miner from Ontario, whose name is now lost to the ether, was found dead, still in his sleeping bag, and his head, however, was never found. So this dude was totally decapitated in 1945. Around that time, another trapper was fatally subjected to the, the wilderness. His name was John O'Brien, and he was found next to his campfire, his hands still clutching a match, and his death was clearly due to freezing to death. So, like, you've got these people that were up there in the wilderness, and they died to the wilderness, and then you've got the people that were slaughtered for absolutely no reason. Mystery. It's kind of like the Dialoff Pass. Yeah, it's it's a little bit reminiscent of that for sure. Yeah. yeah, those people. I mean, having your head cut off sucks, but those people were like bludgeoned. Didn't they have their eyes and tongue removed? Like some weird, weird shit. Yeah, they they were definitely brutally dissected and some some weird shit. Yeah, and getting into it, it it's true. In the winter, the the valley itself is totally inhospitable. Between the freezing temperatures and you've got the timber wolves. Uh, I mean, the grizzly bears are probably in hibernation, but you, you've got all these predators afoot. And the, the nature often claims the lives of the, the most experienced outdoorsmen. It happens frequently. But strangely enough, during the warmer months, the valley transforms into a truly unique environment. So much so that many dubbed it tropical, being warm and lush with vegetation. It's strange how it switches up. And that's actually all due to the hot sulfur springs that can be found here. So it shifts like crazy because of volcanic activity, essentially. The sulfur often fills the air with an odd smell. And strangely enough, the combination of the hot sulfury air and the cooler arctic air above it creates a thick and almost mysterious mist that covers the entire valley. And this gives rise to the mysterious tropical valley that exists somewhere within the huge valley. The legends just keep mounting up. So what this is suggesting is that there's some sort of secret place that exists within the Nehani Valley. But between the mist and the weather change, it's strange. And scientists keep in mind that very few have ever actually set foot in the valley, discovered numerous remains of prehistoric animals, mainly bones of mastodons or mammoths, as well as ancient bear dogs. There's a fancy name for bear dogs, but if you just look them up, you'll... See what we're talking about. I want a fucking bear dog. Check that shit out, dude. You don't want that shit. You don't want that. Are they fluffy? No. See. No. Bear that, dog. It's just it's just showing me really fluffy dogs. No. Yeah. Look up <laughs> ancient bear dog. I did the same thing. I see it. It kind of looks like an armadillo with a bear head. Oh no! Like a like a mountain lion with a bear head. Yeah, that looks like I wouldn't want to be anywhere near that thing. It's, it's exactly how it's described. It's a bear dog. Yeah. <laughs> it's got cat, cat-like qualities. That's wild. No thanks. Now, many claim that these animals are still alive within the deepest, most remote nooks and crannies of the Nahani. 
There are even tales of trappers seeing fresh tracks of prehistoric mammals, as well as bringing back huge ivory tusks with flesh and hair still attached to them. Other stories tell that many of the Dene tribe elders living in the area were able to accurately draw pictures of mammoths almost from memory. So we're talking about the early 1900s here, and you've got these tribal men that are drawing pictures of mammoths. They've never had internet. They've never gone to a museum and they're drawing. Yeah, they, they've been living in this valley since they were children with nothing. It's like land of the lost. And this is like we said, this is northern Canada. This is way up there in the in the boonies where it's really cold. Some suggest that the Nehani Valley is actually one of the many entrances to the so-called hollow earth. The valley is in fact dotted with subterranean caverns, upwards of 250 of them, and most of them remain unexplored. Hmm. Hollow Earth. I love it. It all ties back. That'd be pretty insane if it was indeed an entrance to the Hollow Earth, and maybe there are these creatures and prehistoric animals coming out of the center of the Earth where they've thrived. You know, a lot of people, when they think of the Hollow Earth or when they imagine the Hollow Earth, there are still dinosaurs and prehistoric animals that exist there because they never got wiped out. Didn't Admiral Byrd say that he saw, like, wild, weird creatures? Yeah, flying dinosaurs. There's, like, reports of pterodactyls and shit as, like, late 1800s yeah that's a conspiracy in itself yeah this northern canada region is one of the least explored areas in all of the planet it's very unresearched there there haven't been a ton of scientists no geographers it's just vast and uncharted So for that to be the case, for there to possibly be mammoths, for there to possibly be uncontacted tribes, it's not totally unrealistic. And that, Hushlings, is exactly why we're starting a Kickstarter. You can help the Hush Hush Society. We're going way up north. We're going to find the entrance to the Hollow Earth, and you can come along with us. Uh, Ten, fifteen thousand dollars should get us all up there with all the best equipment, and uh, we'll repel down into the uh, the depths of the earth. And instead of getting disemboweled by wolves, Mike will get disemboweled by bear dogs. I can't wait! Oh my god, that is the way to go. Decapitated <laughs> by uncontacted tribes living in the mountains. That's more likely. <laughs> As long as we don't touch the gold, we'll be fine. Maybe the lost city of uh, El Dorado is up north and not down south. It might be. Don't touch the gold. In the end, no one can accurately say what the fuck is going on with the Mysterious Valley. Upwards of 44 people have either died or disappeared entirely on the land since 1908. Alright, final thoughts, Dave? (sighs) This could be anything. The beheadings are the weird part because you don't just, you don't fall, break your leg and your head falls off, you know, and just die in the wilderness. You know, when you freeze to death, your head just doesn't fall off. And then the accounts of one guy reaching for his gun, where it looks like there might've been some type of struggle, or at least the no that something was going to happen to some of these guys. For me, I think three options. Either these grizzly bears have a thirst for beheading people up there, or it's an uncontacted tribe that we do not know about up in the Yukon region, Northwest Territories, uh, entirely possible. And uh, human beings are very notorious for beheading people that they don't like or people that they don't want around. And the warning signs leaving bodies or body parts or even heads on pikes in certain regions, that happens. Or it's a Sasquatch just popping people's heads off like dandelions or these guys are literally just killing each other over gold but the beheading thing is just a little too weird i want to say that it's some sort of uncontacted tribe especially when you get talking about the mammoth drawings 
that is pretty wild to me. 1900s mammoth drawings. It really feels, it's given the vibe of like land of the lost very much. So I like the idea that's an entrance to the inner earth. I'm going to go with that. That's the entrance. That's one of the entrances to the inner earth. And it's just creatures and wild Neanderthal men crawling up from the muck, taking people's heads. (laughs) Frank, final thoughts. I definitely think that the Neha tribe is still fully functional. And somehow they moved down from the mountaintops and they were just picking off these pioneers. They were picking off these gold diggers one by one and absolutely decapitating them, taking all of their gold, taking their guns, taking their food and just plundering what they could off of them and all the power to them. That's been their land for hundreds and hundreds of years. By all means, take what they've got, I suppose. Um, In regards to some sort of hollow earth entrance, I like the idea a lot, especially because of how remote it is, how undiscovered it's been, and the the lack of research that's taken place in that area. I I think it's, it's viable. Yeah, another fun one. This was a good one, boys. This was a good one. Well, Hushlings, what did you think? Was there anything that we missed? Anything that we should have discussed? Any other topics from the iceberg conspiracy chart that we should take on in our next season ender? Let us know. Reach out to us, as always, our email, contact at hushhossociety.com. Hushlings, it's happening. We're entering our ninth season. Nine seasons. Three years, nine seasons. Our next debriefing is the premiere, and we will investigate the mysterious extraterrestrial who worked and lived at the Pentagon, known as Valiant Thor. And that'll be streaming everywhere Monday, September 4th. I've got a question for the patrons. Have you ever seen a baby pigeon? Probably not. I've seen whole flocks of pigeons, but I've never seen a baby pigeon. Have you? I doubt it. They don't exist. Yeah, yeah, they don't exist. So we're going to actually address this in our next exclusive debriefing where we're going to ask the question, are birds real? Which they're probably not. Birds aren't real. That's going to be debuting Thursday, September 21st. Get with it. Birds aren't real. Only to the patrons. Thank you again. We hope you enjoyed it, and we will see you in a couple weeks. I'm Declassified Dave. I miss your mic. And I'm Sick Frank Sanders. Until our next debriefing, remember, the best kept secrets are hidden in plain sight.